Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 98. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. Audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them, but I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to get caught up on my book as I'm driving to work, if I'm exercising, any free time, working out in the yard, I can get caught up on all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible. And you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from. You can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out doseofleadership.com slash audible to make your smartphone smarter. I'm so excited to have on my show today Greg Link. He is the co-founder of the Franklin Covey Speed of Trust Practice, Covey Link and the former Covey Leadership Center. He is the co-author with Stephen M. R. Covey, who we just had on the show recently, of the Wall Street Journal and number one Amazon bestseller, Smart Trust, the defining skill that transforms managers into leaders. He orchestrated the strategy that led Dr. Stephen R. Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, to one of the, uh, to one of the two most influential business books of the 20th century, according to CEO Magazine. Greg Link is committed to influencing influencers to transform toxic relationships, teams, and organizations, and transform managers into leaders with smart trust. Greg, welcome to the Dose of Leadership podcast. Hey, I'm so pleased to be with you today. Well, I'm glad you're here. You know, I had a great conversation with your uh, colleague, Stephen M. R. Curry, uh, a couple weeks ago, and I came across, you know, both his book, The Speed of Trust, and of course, your guys' book, The Smart, smart Trust, and powerful books. In fact, I've recommended them. I just did an interview yesterday, and I got asked a question in a speed round, uh, what book would you recommend to people? And I actually recommended Smart Trust because, uh, man, we, you and I were talking just a second ago before we started recording about this huge vacuum of this common sense heroic leadership out there, and that the root of leadership is trust. So where did it all begin with you? Well, um, we uh, have been at the leadership game for over 25 years and uh, uh, had the privilege to work with Stephen's late father, Stephen Arcutty, who, right. as you mentioned, was Seven Habits uh, author. And as we worked with, uh, uh, you know, Seven Habits translated into 38 languages. It was all over the world. We do business in 100 countries. And it's really fascinating as we talk to uh, senior leaders over the last couple decades there was a common thread in all those conversations, and it led back to trust. Their success had some thread back to, uh, to trust, and one of the outcomes of Seven Habits was to make people more trustworthy. And so we uh, feel, uh, felt that that was uh, something that people resonated with, so that's why we focused on trust. And as you mentioned, it is a critical need right now. Yeah, I don't know why it necessarily happens, and maybe we can get into some of this in this conversation, but... Uh the more that I talk about leadership, the more that I study it, 
um, the more that I see the secret sauce to any successful relationship, a successful organization, a business, is what I call this authenticity and this vulnerability. And, and at the root of that, at the heart of that, is what trust is all about, correct? I mean, talk to me a little bit, you know, some of the specific reasons um, why trust is so important to the success of an organization or a relationship. Well, it's kind of a paradox, you know. We're in the lowest trust decade in, in history in the United States economy and throughout the world. And in that same environment of low trust, uh, the paradox is that the successful leaders, the successful companies, the successful organizations, the successful marriages and relationships are all based upon trust. And high-trust people uh, tend to be promoted. They're the first to be hired, the last to be laid off. Uh, they get more responsibility. They get bigger budgets. There's just a lot of good things that happen for an individual or for a company when they are focused on trust. You know, you say in Smart Trust that it's a defining skill. How is it so much of a skill? Well, it, you know, people don't think of trust as a skill. That's one of the myths, uh, Richard, is that people feel like it's you either have it or you don't. And the truth is, it is a skill. It's something you can get good at. And uh, as you, as we study, there's, there's really a direct line correlation, as I mentioned, to uh, success, successful companies and successful individuals in their ability to be able to extend trust to others. And that uh, is a kind of an unconscious competence for many, uh, but as you put attention on it and make it an explicit objective, you know, we've identified five uh, uh, actions that are common to these high-trust people all over the, the world, and, and those are, you know, people can look at those in the book. We won't get into them today because we don't have the time, but it is a skill. You can get better at it, and it the reason it's the defining skill is because it's a performance multiplier. All the other investments in, in uh, uh, leadership skills or any other uh, investments in quality, innovation, they're all enhanced in a high-trust company or a high-trust relationship. So it amplifies everything else you've already, already invested your time and energy into because when, when trust is there, uh, it just makes everything uh, more productive. What about, what would you say, playing devil's advocate about some of the, the people out there? And I know I talked a little bit about this with with, um, with Stephen a couple weeks ago, but I see this in my own personal life. I see it with people that I know, that there's this, um, we're almost taught to be skeptical to trust. I mean, I think that's where you see a lot of the bureaucracies, the legal the legalese, you know, um, why it's so sure. difficult to do business these days. How do we break through that? I mean, isn't it? Isn't it too risky to be trusting too much? Well, you know, we're conditioned, you know, from the time we're little. You know, remember in school, and when you've got kids, uh, stranger danger, you know, don't talk to strangers. And so we're conditioned from the get-go to be suspicious of others. And so as a result, it is, it is difficult. And then you get all the reinforcing news of all the people that are being taken advantage of, the Bernie Madoffs, et cetera. So it is, it is difficult. But, yeah, it is risky. Uh, but the greater risk is to not extend trust. Mm. And uh, an example uh, that we like to use, and it's in the Smart Trust book, is about a company some of us aren't familiar with. It's called Skyhook Wireless. And for those of us that have smartphones, uh, it's based upon they're based upon Skyhook Wireless's technology. And they had the CEO of Skyhook had presented their technology to. Uh, uh, 
many companies. They worked with a large telecommunications company, 30 meetings, and they couldn't get a deal. They met with Apple, and one day as uh, the CEO got a call, the voicemail said, this is Steve Jobs. So he laughed to himself and thought, sure. He erased the voicemail. He went into his partner and said, ah, funny joke, you know. Uh, he thought I'd fall for that one. And he goes, oh, I didn't do it. Anyway, he figured out that it was Steve Jobs. They got into conversations with Jobs. They were getting ready to do a deal. And uh, Skyhook, by the way, are the ones that drove the world in all those little cars that triangulated all the signals so that we could have uh, Google Maps and have uh, uh, GPS. And anyway, uh, Jobs uh, called him back one day. He's in with his management team. And uh, Jobs says, you know, I know we don't have an agreement yet, but uh, I'm doing this little thing called Macworld next week, and we'd like to highlight uh, your technology, and I need your code. And if you understand the technology business, uh, you know, that's pretty, that's the deed to the house, you know. Right. So he goes, he lifts up the phone, he talks to his managers, and all of his partners say, oh, no, no, you can't give him the code. He pauses for a minute. He gets back on the phone with Steve Jobs, and he gives him the code. And then, you know, Skyhook was highlighted in Macworld, and it just transformed their whole success. And so that was risky, but it was a calculated risk. Right. It wasn't stupid trust. He knew that Jobs had a character, that it was a visible company, that, he, you know, they were close to a deal. And so as a result, even against the advice of his partners, he took the risk. And the greater risk would have been to, to not trust. If you would have turned it down, we wouldn't even know, uh, you know, they, they just wouldn't have had the success that they've had. So it uh, sometimes is, is riskier not to not to trust. Well, but you got to be smart about it. That's, that's right. The point. Yeah, and, and that's why it's called smart trust, because understanding that the rewards that can come with the risk of trusting, because you can't really have a richness, a fullness, uh, truly energetic, prosperous, joyful interaction if you don't trust. It's just not possible, right? It's not possible, and it's the key to success. It's a mission-critical skill, a career-critical skill. I was at the uh, uh, commencement uh, ceremonies of Thunderbird International Management School in Arizona uh, this spring, and the uh, the keynote address was given by Doug Parker, who's the CEO of US Air, who is about to become the CEO of the merged company American Airlines and and be the largest airline in the world if we can get it through through the process. But at any rate, he pointed out, he says, the one secret they don't teach you in business school is they don't teach you that relationships matter. He mm-hmm. said that the American executives did not want to do a merger. They didn't even want to talk about it. And through a series of meetings that they had, they were able to persuade them. And the persuasion was uh, happened because in an initial meeting with the United Auto Workers, or not the auto workers, the Airline Mechanics Association reunion, uh, one of the American Airlines guys recognized the U.S. Air guy that he worked with in the past that he trusted, and he asked him, he said, you know, what's it like at U.S. Air? And he says, well, it's a great culture. And so based upon the trust of that one relationship, and they found other people that they had trusted relationships with, and that's what turned this whole merger uh, into a reality. And so... The uh, ability to gender trust and have a reputation, have a track record, uh, our reputations precede us, and it really does make a difference. Uh, uh, and you can have these unforeseen consequences of trusted relationships. You never know when you're going to be working for the 
person that you may have had to let go in, <laughs> That's in right. a previous setting. That's right. So, uh, trusting relationships are ripple through everything. Well, and it's certainly become you know apparent for me, even as I you know one thing that I have been working on the past few years is trying you know uh, positioning and selling services. I never considered myself a great salesman, and the and for me where it this you know because I have a, a maybe a faulty look on selling or I had in the past but it really comes down to people do business with people they know like and trust and so all of your business should be focused on generating that and um, building that level of trust I talk you, you talk but it amplifies I mean you know referral business is the art of the deal that's I mean, right that's the most inexpensive you know people that uh, trust us buy more they buy more often they refer their friends it really is an economic multiplier that's right well you know going back just to highlight the points as, as we go on is that you really you talk about in the book and because we are skeptical that's kind of this the glasses of distrust which i've i've been guilty of myself the naivete naivete side the naive side the blind trust uh, but you're saying the smart trust look it's it's a calculated look it's a it's the idea, and I do believe, like you say in the book, that I believe that most people want to trust. I think that is the natural incl- inclination that we want to trust, right? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the stories in the book is about Pierre Midiar, who's the founder of eBay. And uh, he, uh, you know, we, we talk about you know, smart trust being a third alternative. It's not, you know, being blind trust, but it's also not being so... Uh, uh, cynical and skeptical that you don't trust anybody. It's, it's finding that sweet spot, balancing that. Well, in Midiar, uh, when he started eBay, he had that uh, propensity to trust. He felt that most people, you know, want to be good. And he did his analysis. He took the risk. And when he was asked later on by Fortune magazine what was the most exciting thing or uh, insightful thing he learned at eBay, and he said it's to 135 million people. Uh, 135 million strangers, specifically, he said, learned to trust each other. But it, he did it, he said he based it on the fact that he felt that most people were basically good. And yeah. it proved out. Yeah. And it does again and again. You're absolutely right. So what do you do? How does it start? I mean, obviously it has to start with the self. I mean, how does someone who is maybe um, skeptical of others or or doesn't have that propensity, they don't want to believe that, they, they've been burned in the past, that the wounds are so deep, is it still possible to kind of start with yourself and, and start building up those levels of trust or believing, having that propensity to trust others? Yeah, it, you really just have to give people the benefit of the doubt, Richard, and start from that position. We're not suggesting stupid trust. We're not suggesting right. that you don't do the analysis. But if you can at least start with the assumption that, like Pierre Omidyar did with eBay, that most people can be trusted then you start from there and you do your analysis with that perspective that this person really you know has a business they want to be good they want to uh, do what they say they're going to do but then you got to be smart about it again it depends upon their track record you have to do your analysis and their character and confidence comes into play uh, but you you uh, want to start from being uh, willing to, to give people the benefit of the doubt. You gave some two great examples already with, with business. Or Do you have any other, you know, fascinating stories or examples in business of, of where trust has... Yeah, there's a number of them through the book. And again, we find that this is the common thread over and over again, successful companies. I think Stephen talked about 
Zappos in your previous conversation, which in the worst economic decade in history uh, went from zero to a billion-dollar company selling women's shoes online. And when we asked the CEO, uh, uh, Tony Shea, how he did it, he said, by trusting my customers and trusting my employees. Uh, another great example is Zane's Bicycle. It's a $13 million bicycle uh, business on the East Coast, and he uh, sells bikes that are anywhere from you know a few hundred dollars to several thousand dollars, and he lets people uh, take them for a test ride for free. Wow. And he doesn't get identification. He doesn't hold a collateral. And people say, well, here, do you want my wallet? And he goes, no, no, I trust you. And it's that extension of trust. People, you know, it's reciprocal. That your people like to be trusted. It's the that's the uh, part that's so hard for people to understand. It's it's uh, uh, you know the, if you want to increase trust, give it. <laughs> you know, in order to get more trust, you got to give it. And uh, it is risky. Back to the risk factor. He does lose five bikes a year, but that is less than two percent of his business. And so his business is thirteen million dollars. He's one of the largest bike. Uh, bicycle salespeople in the world, and he attributes it to the fact that he trusts his customers and he gets his employees to trust his customers. And as a result, the uh, uh, just the word of mouth uh, reputation that he's developed uh, it more than makes up for the risk of losing a few bikes. Yeah, I think that's the key. I mean, you see kind of a reactionary response. I don't care if you're being a parent or running a business or, or anything, that when there are those examples at one time uh, something happens. Well, I mean, TSA is a perfect example, right? One person brings a liquid, yeah. liquid uh, bomb-making material in a water bottle. Now we can't take water bottles through there. So it's that same type of thing. How? I, it's it's an interesting experience. I've always wondered, like, if you almost took away all those security measures and and trusted how how much different life would be. Um, I don't know. Sometimes people don't think it's worth the risk, but. Um, I don't know. I think the rewards are greater. You know, it's it's just like that example. Well, we, you know, we're a trusting society. I mean, we trust that when we go to England, people are going to drive on a certain side of the road. Right. We trust in the United States are going to drive on the other side of the road. Right. So we already extend trust dramatically. We trust the pilot. How many of us interview the pilot when we get on a plane to make sure they know what they're doing? We trust that the airlines have maintained the plane. So we're we're already uh, in a society where we're benefiting from the tremendous benefits of extending trust. But again, being smart about it, doing the analysis, doing the due diligence, and then you know trust but verify. Uh, you want to give people if you're a manager, you want to extend a little bit of trust and see how they do with that. And then next time you maybe give them a bigger uh, assignment, et cetera. And that's how people's careers are grown as they uh, fulfill the trust that they're that they're given. Yeah, you know, I've seen that a lot, and maybe you're hitting on it right there, but the greatest fear that managers have, extending trust, I've seen um, the kind of managers be frozen in the tracks, not wanting to let their people make mistakes. What do you think is the biggest reason why managers don't extend trust? What is their biggest fear, do you think? Their biggest fear is losing control uh, and uh, not being able to control the outcome and protect themselves and, and mitigate the risk. But as we've said before, the greater risk is to hold everything tight to the belt and create an environment where people are afraid to fail. There's a great story, uh, IBM, Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, years and years and years ago, uh, some young man made a $10 million mistake, which, you know, 50 years ago was a lot of money. Right. <laughs> it still is today. But he went into to Watson expecting to be fired, 
And as he was leaving, he says, well, I really expected you were going to fire me. And, and he said, fire you? I just spent $10 million educating you. <laughs> and you've got to create an environment of safety, safety to make mistakes, safety to have, uh, to innovate. And so, uh, but you also, again, still need to be smart about it. You'll go out of business if you let people uh, take un, in, you know, uninvestigated risks. But it, it, that is their greatest fear. They're just afraid to let go. And, and that's the thing that keeps managers from being promoted and keeps them from becoming leaders. It, it keeps them from growing their companies. Because you can't, I don't care how good you are, you can't do it all yourself. You've got to extend trust. You've got to develop your people. Yeah. I think managers really start stepping into the leadership realm in this kind of this transition, the moment that they can start, like you said, letting go. And that's that's analogous to every part of your life, not just managing in business. But if the, the moment that you can start trusting and letting go, that's when the real transformational leadership starts to happen in every aspect of your life. That's when the real growth really begins to take root. And it's fun to watch. And I've seen it a handful of times where it's clicked with a manager, and that's kind of the moment, kind of the uh, the knighting of the shoulder when they kind of step into the leadership pool, in my opinion, is when they start letting go and they start looking and seeing that, like, you know what, this isn't so much about me. And the confidence, the confidence of just not worrying about being wrong. Does that make sense? The confidence yeah. of not worrying yeah, yeah, about right. being wrong. Being vulnerable, yeah. being authentic, being willing to take the risk. That's one of the reasons why we have the subtitle, you know, that it's the defining skill. We talked about it, uh, trust being a skill, smart trust being a skill, but it's the skill of extending trust in a way where you balance the propensity to trust and the uh, uh, analysis so that you're making good judgment. And that's the, the reason that uh, managers are able to benefit from it. And too many companies, uh, Richard, are overmanaged and under led. Oh, yeah. You know, they, they really are trying to play it safe. And, and uh, you know, it's the companies that take the risks that, that seem to succeed throughout history. And that continues uh, to be reinforced as we find. And the irony is that there's so many, so much information, so much evidence. All through the book, we present evidence and case studies of different uh, circumstances where this plays out. And but for some reason, we dramatize the failures. That's what's on the news. They don't have the success stories on the news. They have all the, the things that tell you to watch out. So as a result, we get conditioned and we're afraid to do it. But it is the greatest risk of all to not trust. Yeah. You know, you've been doing this for a very long time. You've been dealing with a lot of companies, a lot of individuals probably too. What is the most frequent question you get asked in this arena? Well, typically, uh, the, the most common question we get is, well, okay, I get it. It makes sense, and there's success there, but what happens when somebody violates my trust? Mm, what yeah. if I make a mistake and lose somebody else's trust? Can trust be restored? And, boy, that's a good question. And, and it, there are some cases where it's so egregious, uh, somebody's unfaithful in, in some way in a relationship. There are situations we acknowledge when it's so egregious that you're not going to restore trust with that person. But in most cases, more often than not, by a wide margin, you can restore trust. We had a woman in one of our uh, uh, programs that uh, said she hadn't talked to her sister in a couple of years. And uh, so it's a two-day seminar, and in the evening before, in between she called her sister. Her sister hung up, and she calls her back and says, please don't hang up, I, I just want to talk. And sister listens for a minute, and, and the next thing you know, neither one of them could remember why they were mad at each other. Right. And so... 
you know, it, it's not always that easy. But for two years, they had both been afraid to even try. So restoring trust is an art. We've actually uh, got a uh, uh, restoring trust uh, kit at restoretrust.com where they can download a bunch of tips and guidelines on how to restore trust. Because if you're going to take the risk, you're going to have problems, and it's going to break. And you need to – that's the other leadership skill is to be able to get back on the right uh, trajectory once somebody makes a mistake, how to fix it, how to restore the trust. Yeah, no, I love that. I, you know, I'm, you know, just I've seen that personally in my own life, you know, where trust has been violated and, and working uh, to regain the trust. It's certainly – you know, even in its darkest days, um, times I thought it was impossible, um, there are ways that you can certainly get it back. So I wish I would have had that resource when I was going through my trials and tribulations of restoring trust. So what is it? Is it RestoreTrustKit.com? Is that what you said it was? Yeah, RestoreTrustKit.com. I'll make sure. And it's a free download of a number of different things, a couple of video clips, etc. The, the interesting thing, Richard, is one of the good things about the fact that, like you said, that you have the experience of having to restore trust. The good thing about that is that it, it helps, those experiences help us understand how precious trust is so we can make sure we behave in ways that we don't lose it again. We have a tendency to, to judge ourselves by our good intentions. We judge others by their observable behavior. And so we want to behave in ways that engender trust. And by losing it, a few times and regaining it, we re- and realizing how hard it is to regain it, we get a little more conscious about how do we how do we maintain it uh, in the first place. Yeah, it's not, it's definitely not a one to one relationship. It's almost like I gave the example. Um, you know, every time you do something that that improves your credibility and your trust, you know, you get a penny and you put it in your pocket, and that's your and every penny that you gain is your level of trust. But when you lose it, you shell it out in dollar bills. It's not like, you know, you get it back, you know, (laughs) it can go away so quick in a moment, in an instant. And you're right, it is a precious. And and that's the sad thing is, is, you know, a withdrawal or a violation of trust, like you say, is exponentially more costly than the the credit you get when you do things right. That's right. And even at the organizational level, I know you've been involved in the airline industry, you know, even at the organizational level, it can be restored. Gordon Bethune, there's a book called From Worst to First, and Gordon Bethune was the tenth CEO in a row of uh, uh, Continental Airlines. Right. They had just had a disastrous decade in the 90s, and he comes along, he's the tenth CEO in a row, and how in the world is none of the other people could could uh, restore trust? How is he going to do it? And, and uh, uh, they were dead last in all the statistics that they keep on airlines, and that's why the book's called Worst to First, and they managed to go from the worst uh, statistics on on-time arrivals and all the, the airline statistics to the first. And the first thing he did is he took the policy and procedure manual out in the parking lot and burned it. Wow. And he said, you know, we, uh, because that's the, the challenge. We, we try to, when we're over-managing, we are building up these, you know, something happens, so we put in another policy to make sure that never happens again. Pretty soon you've got everybody afraid to move, and we over-manage and we get the bureaucratic layers and all that stuff. So we took all that out, did the Peter Drucker approach, and started with a blank sheet of paper and said, okay, now we're going to rebuild trust in this organization, and you trust in me, and, and uh, the rest is history. So he took an entire multi-million-dollar organization and restored trust in it, both with the customers and with the employees. Gosh, I think that gets it's such 
an amazing story. I mean, it is so it rings so true. I think back to all the organizations that I've worked in, and one of the biggest complaints, and you see the people on the front lines and they're working, and and you know, and, and regulations and rules and policies, they're always for the most part meant with good intent. But man, they have so many unforeseen consequences, and and the <laughs> the, the fallacy, the myth, thinking that we as leaders and managers and business owners can control and and keep things within the lines and the boundaries by you know mandating a policy a procedure a regulation we're usually doing more harm than good if we just would just well yeah we need we need some regulation we need some policies and some agreed upon procedures like when you get in your airplane you want to go through your pre-flight check i mean there's things you we do that are preventative that are necessary but at the same time we also want to give people enough uh rope if you will, to become uh, creative. Most innovation comes from people coloring outside of the, the lines. matter of fact, Google allows that each one mandates, basically, that their engineers spend 20% of their time on uh, projects that excite them that yeah. are not necessarily directly related with their jobs. And most of the innovation, they, Marissa Meyer, before she became CEO of uh, Yahoo!, uh, when she was still at Google, said that 50% at one point of all their innovation had come from 20% time. Yeah, I believe that. You know, you talked about it. You're right. As a pilot, I live and die by rules and regulations. A lot of them were written in blood. I mean, they're there for a good reason. But I always give this example when they talk about rules and regulations. I was asked the other day, when is a good time to uh, break a rule? And for me, it's whenever um, sound judgment and common sense overrides that rule. Just remembering that rules were man-made – and uh, yeah. and that you know every every aircraft manual that I had it says you know you must follow this book know it inside and out cover to cover if you don't bad things will happen you'll lose your license it'll property damage or may even die but there's also a phrase in those books too right after it goes through all that legalese and it says however this book is not a substitute for sound judgment and common sense and I think that's the <laughs> rope that's the rope that you're talking about that you got to give people because not every you cannot cover every contingency with any law, rule, or regulation. You just can't. You can't, and that's what we're trying to do in Smart Trust. Right. We suggest that by balancing the propensity to trust with analysis that you can develop the skill of knowing when you're extending sound judgment, when you can uh, trust somebody to perform, when you can extend that trust to people. And uh, it is a skill, uh, which means you got to get, you got to practice it. You got to get better at it. I live out here in the wild, wild west, as we were talking about before. I'm from Colorado, and you know, when you first start to ski, you fall down a bunch. Right. And uh, they say, no matter how big you get, if you're not still falling down, you're not learning. Well, it's pure gold. Uh, I love what you guys are doing, both you and Stephen. Um, I think it's a great book. It's definitely on my must-to-do reads or must. You know, when I talk to people i'm saying you got to read this book it's it's essential it's essential i use it as part of my leadership development that i'm continually improving and and this has definitely made it within that camp i love what you guys have done here well thank you we appreciate it and we hope that uh like seven habits both speed of trust and smart trust will become a must read for anybody that's aspiring to lead an organization yeah i think it is i think it's definitely up there i mean i think it's really that good in my opinion so what's the last thing? Talk to some of these folks out there who maybe are struggling with leadership or they're brand new to it for the first time. What is one thing that they can do that they can to, to build the trust to start today? Yeah, well, you, you mentioned common sense. You know, as uh, Dr. Covey, as a late Dr. Covey said, you know, common. we teach common sense. It's just not common practice. People don't uh, 
don't do it. And so that sound judgment that you mentioned is really important. And so one thing that, that really is at the base of everything, we talked to one CEO that operated in 180 countries, and trust is universally applicable in all these different societies. They have a little bit different practices in, in some areas of the world. But fundamental common denominator that he pointed to is the one thing that everybody you know, holds everybody up to uh, as it relates to trust across the world is do you do what you say you're going to do? So the one thing people can do to uh, practice this and get better at it is just remember to make a promise and keep it. If you want to build trust with somebody quickly, make a promise and keep it. And uh, just and then repeat it. <laughs> just keep doing that and be known for doing what you say you're going to do. And that one thing more than anything, because generally uh, when we have to restore trust, it's because we violated an expectation. We uh, made a promise and we didn't keep it or we uh, uh, over-promised and under-delivered. So that one thing is the one thing that if they'll start there, their common sense will kick in and all the rest of this will become pretty obvious to them. I love the simplicity of it. It sounds so easy. Sometimes it's not as easy to put in practice, but you're so so spot on with that simple common sense advice. I love it. Where can people find you, Greg? Well, in addition to RestoreTrustKit.com, uh, uh, they can uh, get the books at, uh, well, they're in Wichita at uh, Watermark Books, uh, the, one of the famous uh, independent booksellers. They're also in all the airports, Barnes & Noble, of course, and then uh, on Amazon.com, so it's pretty hard not to find us. Greg, thanks for coming on the show. It's been so much fun. Uh, it's been uh, a fun two weeks talking to you and Stephen, and I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Hey, well, thank you, Richard. We appreciate you getting the word out and, and all the good work that you do at uh, Dose of Leadership. Thanks, Steve. We'll talk to you. Oh, I'm sorry. Steve, my man. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for coming on the show. That's all right. No worries. Take care. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.